So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Conspirituality, 
I'm Derek Barris. August has featured a number of special episodes. In fact, the three of us are not releasing one group conversation this entire month. That's okay, as we communicate every day and are working on future episodes. We're just trying to get some vacation time in. In fact, I'm on a plane today for the first time in two years, and I'm really hoping you're not going to see any videos on our Instagram feed of someone getting duct taped to their seat. Fingers crossed. But speaking of Instagram, you can find us there as well as on Facebook and YouTube. And all three of us are on Twitter, myself and Matthew under our names, and Julian at Embodied Sacred. And of course, we're on Patreon, where for $5 a month, you can support us and get access to our Monday bonus episodes. We start this week with a ticker by Matthew, who previews a bonus episode on the friendship porn we see on the Almost 30 episode, in which the hosts share tears after being snowjobbed by Zach Bush. It's, um, it's quite something to uh, watch, for sure. <laughs> Uh, The feature interview is with British author and journalist Will Storr, whose new book, The Status Game, on social position and how we use it, is perfect for anyone who listens to this podcast. I would argue anyone, period, but the spiritual and wellness communities feature plenty of influencers clawing for status, which, as you'll hear, is just the human condition. Thankfully, there are ways to mitigate that tension, as Will explains. If the quest for enlightenment includes knowing who we are, well, then we need to turn to evolutionary biology, psychology, and sociology. I'd put spirituality last on that list. Important, certainly, but constrained and even dictated by our animal nature. Once we recognize that, however, progress is possible, which I'll be talking to Will about. This is The Conspirituality Ticker, a weekly bullet point rundown on the ongoing pandemic of messianic influencers who spread medical misinformation and sell disaster spirituality. Hey, everybody. The summer is winding down and I'm heading up north with my family. And so my contribution this week is remote as Derek takes the wheel and Julian is on a research break. First up is a correction I'd like to offer on behalf of our esteemed guest last week, Jatarth Jadea. Uh, He appeared with Rachel Bernstein and we spoke about uh, QAnon in the long run. In one section, Jatarth misspoke about the conflicts within Northern Ireland decades ago, uh, but then he tweeted out his correction, uh, saying that he should not have called the Troubles the Irish Civil War, uh, that he noted he was wrong on how long it lasted for. It was 30 years and not 20, as he'd said. And he'd also inflated the casualties from 3.5 thousand dead to 30,000. And also the number of IRA involved, which was approximately 350 fighters, not 1,000. So uh, that was a lot of integrity. And thank you for that, Jitarth. So this week I wanted to offer for the ticker a brief stub of the bonus I'm preparing for Monday, which ties in with Derek's exploration of status with Will Storr on today's episode. The title for the bonus so far is I Don't Know Who My Friends Are, which sounds a little extreme, but sometimes it's true, and not just because I can tend towards introversion or because I have what might be some neurodivergent traits related to incessant writing, which in turn encourages me away from socialization. 
I really don't know who my friends are sometimes because I've grown up in an economy that parasitizes friendship. And I have the sense that this is an unexamined current that flows underneath our analysis of influencer culture, our analysis of parasocial relationships, and how people bond superficially, unsatisfactorily through conspirituality. So where I'm coming from is that someone sent me a podcast featuring our favorite doctor who thinks he's a preacher, Zach Bush. The podcast is called Almost 30, and I'd never heard of it, but when I got to the homepage, they made sure I felt like I should have, although I suppose I'm not the target market. So they advertise it as a top 50 wellness spirituality ranking podcast for women, uh, 30 million downloads. They offer courses, workshops, merch, the whole thing. And from what I can tell, the podcast revolves around the fabulous spiritual lifestyle friendship between Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek, uh, the hosts. They are 230-something. I, I think the almost 30 part is a joke. L.A. women who met at SoulCycle. So I'll post the Vox investigation into SoulCycle in the notes, but... Basically, they met at a fitness cult and have gone on to up-level their own brand of wellness pornography, which is a term I defined in an article I'll link to in the notes as well. So I have to say I hated everything about this site. It was slick, presumptuous, empty, but also grandiose, like all at once. And I felt guilty because I couldn't really admire the shots of them in great outfits laughing on the beach, but it just felt like a nightmare of unearned privilege and tyrannical happiness to me, like real New Age Stepford stuff, like getting punched in the face by Gwyneth Paltrow wearing a boxing glove full of potpourri, but not the pure one variety of potpourri, like super high quality potpourri from Bali. And I have to check in with myself as a male commentator here and ask just how much misogyny is behind my responses. And that was the sound of me checking in regarding this case. I just don't think that's it. I have blind spots to be sure, but I don't think that's what's going on because I hate men's sites like this even more. Tantric brotherhoods, CrossFit hangouts, microbrews and microdoses, dudes consuming each other's snark like hot dogs. I can't watch Joe Rogan because the whole channel smells like bully. So Almost 30 is Joe Rogan for white LA gig workers who are working the aspiration grift. But I think what I really can't stand about it is that it offers what I can now see clearly as a subset of wellness pornography that I think we can call friendship pornography. So I've got a definition for wellness pornography, and if I change a few words, we get, we engage with friendship pornography by consuming attractive images and vicarious sensations of friendship for the sake of pleasure without having to engage with the complexity of social conditions, class differences, boredom, sickness, or death, and without having to be responsible for the other in any sustainable way. So why is this relevant to conspirituality? 
At every turn on this podcast, we are talking about economies built on sales within demographics sewn together by consumerism. It is a world in which charisma is the currency and emotions are the commodities. When the influencer sells you on their subscription community, quote unquote, they are offering a toxic mimic of friendship. That's clear. Think about how MLMs at one extreme end of this spectrum co-opt the lingo of community, tribe, and so on, when what they're really doing is turning every single social interaction within a given demographic into a sales pitch. So why has friendship porn become such a big thing? And why have I had this feeling of desiccation when I consider my own friendship landscape in relation to the wellness and yoga worlds? I mean, it could be because I've spent the last decade ragging on yoga dipshits and busting cults. That is definitely part of it. But I think there's something more here, something about how the economy set us up for increasingly frayed social ties. So in the bonus episode, I'll be focusing in on the material and social impacts of freelance work, which is what predominates in the wellness world. And I'll be talking about how I think it impacts friendship. And by the way, Krista and Lindsay might be truly great friends because after all, they bonded over Zach Bush. They wept together because he sounded like Jesus. I knew that I would cry before I was like sitting and I was like, I'm going to cry and I'm not exactly sure why. And then he started speaking about just like the beauty of nature and the beauty of us as humans outside of things that make us feel separate from ourselves. And wow, I mean, so I was crying and I cry, I cry a good amount during interviews. So I was like, I didn't know if you were crying or not. And I was like, fuck, I'm crying again in an interview. And, you know, at times it's, it's, I'm actually working on my energy management a little bit. So I'm not so in the field of whatever that person's experience is so that I'm not crying all the time. But and so when I looked at you crying too, I was like, oh my God, dude. And then you look at Zach and he's just Jesus, he's Jesus just, Christ. Jesus Christ on screen. <laughs> Fully Jesus Christ. He's literally came back after channeling Jesus Christ. You guys, this is us just saying it, but he never said that he was channeling Jesus Christ, FYI. And it was like just fully holding his own energy yes. of whatever was said. But I don't want to end this on a laugh because... As absurd as this is, what really digs at me is that this peak moment of friendship bonding is public, performed, and generated by the piercing blue eyes and vocal fry of a manipulator. And why? Because if you're almost 30 or 30 and you've grown up in wellness and extremely online, what else do you have? How else will you negotiate status if not through the stagecraft of the self mirrored into the stagecraft of relationship. Spirituality, ill-defined a term that it is, often implies both an emptying out and an addition. What leaves is the vacuous clinging to achievements that are supposedly preventing us from seeing our true nature. And what's granted is a new mindset, a novel way of being, one in which you are at peace with both yourself and the world. The dilemma, of course, is that this isn't who we are. 
Aspirations are essential to being human, but fulfilled aspirations turn out to merely be rungs on a ladder that never quite seems to end. And forget it if someone questions how you're climbing. Any slight to this attempt at perceived perfection, this isn't hyperbole. Research conducted by University of Washington's associate professor, Sarah Gimbel, revealed that coming into contact with someone who holds different political beliefs is neurologically similar to walking through the forest and encountering a bear. And if you think spiritual beliefs are any different than politics, you'd be wrong. Not that we can't get better at this game, mind you. And that's where Will Storr's new book, The Status Game, ends up. Admitting how fragile our egos truly are, how relentless humans can be in the pursuit of status, is the first and necessary step in dealing with an impulse that's ingrained in us as bipedalism and the need for sleep. I'm guilty of this, as are you. And if your immediate reaction is, no, I'm not, well, <laughs> that's part of the game too. Let me quote Will, a best-selling author of six books, and I've read four, and I have to say he's an exceptional writer. Quote, if our need for status is so fundamental, this discomfort we feel towards it may seem surprising, but that's the game. To admit to being motivated by improving our rank is to risk making others think less of us, which loses us rank. Even admitting it to ourselves can make us feel reduced. So our awareness of our desire for status eats itself, end quote. And as he goes on in the book, this cuts across all sorts of social fields, whether you're billionaires trying to create your penis-shaped rockets, or if you're on the lower rungs of society, status always matters. Now, we normally associate this lust for status with hedge fund managers and celebrities, politicians, musicians, but I'm sure longtime listeners of this podcast will recognize this thread running through the charismatic influencers that we cover every week. Harder is it to recognize it in ourselves, but that's where the development of empathy comes into play. Understanding what someone else is feeling is no small task especially when that person is just an avatar on the screen or a voice in a pair of headphones. You might think you relate, but we always see everything through our lens first. I mention this not to chastise or judge, just to be honest with the evidence. And while I wouldn't call the status game a prescriptive book, Will ends with seven rules to help us all navigate through the incessant drive for status. Without giving away the game, let's touch upon a few. For example, he advises practicing warmth, sincerity, and competence. Quote, when we're warm, we imply we're not going to use dominance. When sincere, that we're going to play fairly. When competent, that we're going to be valuable to the game itself, both in its own battles for status and to individual players who might learn from us. End quote. Will recognizes some games are more important to each of us than others, and if you understand the hierarchy, you become a better player. Remember that we're all hallucinating reality, so try not to get caught up becoming too invested in anything, especially yourself. And one last rule is to be different, which he writes in one of my favorite lines in the book, 
Originality also makes it more difficult for rivals to catch you. And finally, recognize your status. This is sometimes the hardest lesson in the spiritual realm. Because we aspire to climb constantly, we sometimes forget how high we are above others as it is. When what once seemed aspirational becomes commonplace, we lose meaning in the attainment and focus only on what is left to attain. I've noticed this trend in some friends that are really into ceremony, be it psychedelic or meditation. There's always a deeper layer, always more to be acquired. I wonder when enough is enough, though enough rarely seems to do. Even humility can be its own form of currency, the status of being the one most disciplined and benign, and therefore the highest above it all. And that desire is also the craving for status. And the meaning of life is not to win, Will writes, but to play. Play, of course, implies competition, but it also implies boundaries. The forms of play children engage in to set the rules and create their own hierarchies. It is possible to win and not be too invested in victory, just as it's possible to lose and take it really hard. Likely, you've experienced both. I know I have. I just sometimes wish the spiritual communities didn't take themselves so damn seriously. The map is rarely the territory, and philosophies that are not lived have nothing more to offer than lip service, illusions that we believe can disguise the distance between what we say and even think we are and who we really are. Admit that you're playing, that even tiny accolades can mean the world, and move on. Don't get so bound up in your position. Be there, own it, and hopefully do some good with your lot in life. Strive to make it better for yourself and for others. Just don't color existence with rosy glasses. A lot of people don't have it as well as you do, while others have it way better, at least in terms of social positioning and money. Just own who you are without always feeling the need to be someone else. Here's a personal roadmap I try to follow. The quickest way to spot a liar is to listen to those who claim they're telling the truth. If you want to identify an egomaniac, listen to who says that they're humble. Trust isn't something you need to talk about and is usually the biggest red flag when someone says you can trust them. Just be a trustworthy person. That should be enough. I had the pleasure of first speaking with Will after the publication of his 2018 book, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us which is another book I highly recommend. And I'm really glad Will agreed to have another chat. His writing will challenge you, which is good because that's how you grow. And let's be honest, growth is arguably the best possible outcome of this game that we're all playing. Congratulations on the new book. And Will, thank you for taking time out to talk to Conspirituality today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Derek. And we are going to talk about your new book, The Status Game. But I, I have to start with your 2014 book, the Unpersuadables, Adventures with the Enemies <laughs> of Science. <laughs> it's, it's pretty timely. And uh, we've talked before and I've read all of your books. And there, I think there is a through line of 
narrative uh, narratives that we can pull from to kind of understand where we are today and what we're going through, especially in the United States and the anti-vax movement. But I'm wondering, when you were researching and writing this book, you were looking at more extremist then seemed like extremist groups like white nationalists and had crossover with anti-vax. Back then, almost a decade ago, could you have foreseen the strength that these movements would have picked up and uh, fueled as we uh, are engaging with the anti-vax community today? Not at all. I mean, I was actually thinking about this the other day. Even I, like at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, like having written The Unpersuadables, which is all about irrational beliefs, I was predicting that the COVID pandemic would just wipe out the anti-vax movement because there's that phrase that there's no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole. You know, everyone's dying around you. Of course, that's going to you know bust through these these crazy stories that people tell. But actually, if anything, um, it's got stronger. It, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, just a couple of days ago, we had um, anti-vaxxers making siege to the. BBC Television Centre, which hilariously is no longer the BBC Television. It's now flats, it's apartments. <laughs> they didn't realise they went to the old BBC Television Centre and tried to storm their way in. I mean, it's just madness. And so, so, so it really does show the extraordinary power of irrationality that in this global pandemic that's killed millions and, 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 and has touched it, probably every life, everyone knows somebody that knows somebody that's you know, suffered badly from COVID, it's still not enough to um, break through these sort of incredibly powerful stories that people tell themselves. Here in Los Angeles, we had anti-vax protests outside of a cancer clinic not far from where I live. And I couldn't, I went through cancer about six years ago and I couldn't mm. imagine anything worse than going through that experience, having to go to a clinic for your chemotherapy or whatever, and then getting confronted by these idiots standing outside and having to walk past them and the lack of empathy. Just, and, and I do think this is because you write about anti-vaxxers in the status game, but can you give me a big picture overview from what you learned from the Unpersuadables in terms of why people go so far into these fringe or extremist beliefs such as the anti-vaccination during the time of a pandemic? Yeah, sure. So, so, so when you were talking about your experiences, you know, about then you talked about the, um, you know, the lack of empathy that the, the anti-vaxxers showed, but I, but I think that's the point. I think to them that they're showing in their, to their minds, they're showing extreme empathy because they're heroes. Actually, it's you that's wrong and they're trying to save lives. So it's not that they are cartoon villains loving destruction and death and torture and pain. They actually think they're the heroes and, and, and sincerely. And, you know, the, the, the book I wrote before The Unpersuadables was about, you know, it was, very, it was sort of in my 20s about ghosts and ghost hunters. And the big takeaway from that for me was that people who believe in ghosts, they really believe in ghosts. And people who are spiritualists and mediums, they really believe it. You know, um, they're not these idiot frauds who are just in it to, for money and attention. They sincerely believe it. And I think what, what happens is that we sort of massively underestimate the power of the the power of the brain to kind of seduce people with its stories um and that, that's the big takeaway for me it, it, it's it's that it's that um you know we, we we've evolved not to be natural seekers of truth but but natural kind of believers of um stories and there's no more um, convincing story than the story of that kind of our own 
heroism. And, and if, you know, if we hit upon a set of beliefs that make us feel heroic, make us feel kind of special and important, and we kind of attach our identity to that belief, then it, it becomes extremely powerful. And, you know, the, the mind has this kind of battery of ways of defending those kinds of beliefs uh, from reasonable um, doubt. Interestingly, in, in the status game, you write about how societies such as Japan and China, see status as the responsibility of the group, which is much different than individualist nations. And we can talk briefly about Selfie, which was the book that we first uh, met after you wrote um, Selfie, how we became so self-obsessed in what it's doing to us. And that very much, I think, is a nice companion to the status game. So when you're talking about the hero of your story, there is such an emphasis on me or I being the hero, not the collective society. So Rowling, what parallels were you able to draw between this thrust toward individualism from the Unpersuadables into writing Selfie? Yeah, the cultural thing is really um, interesting. Uh, but, but, but I think the important thing to know about that is that it's, it's not a categorical difference, individualist kind of Westernism versus communitarian kind of East Asian kind of Confucianist culture is, is more a matter of kind of emphasis. So, you know, we're, we're, we're all, um, we're all naturally groupish, um, uh, you know, by default. It's just that the, the, there's a stronger emphasis on the groupishness uh, in East Asian cultures. You know, uh, anti-vax is a group. Um, and, and, you know, when, when somebody plugs themselves into that group, they're going to absorb, um, absorb that group's beliefs um, and other things too, the way they dress, what they read, how they, you know, how they think, how they talk. Um, you know, humans are amazing kind of copying creatures uh, and, and we're programmed to um, kind of join groups to, you know, to seek connection with like-minded people. And then once we've um, joined those groups, you know, most people aren't happy to be on the bottom rungs of any group. Nobody wants to be the least important member of a group. You know, we have this kind of will to rise, the will to gain status within that group. And, you know, th those are very sound evolutionary reasons. You know, all, all living things are driven to kind of solve the problems of survival and reproduction. And, in, and, and for humans, this group, groupish kind of communitarian species, um, the more status that we, 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 we get, the better our chances for survival and reproduction. The more resources we get, the safer our sleeping sites, the better choices of better, you know, choice mates. So, so, so that's the basic heuristic in the human brain. Just get status. If you get status, everything else gets better. So that's what we do. We join groups and we, and we, and, and we try and get status. And in a group like the anti-vax groups, these kind of irrational groups, the way you gain status is by, um, um, by defending and proselytizing their sacred beliefs. So in the, in the status game, I interviewed a young woman from Pennsylvania called Miranda Dinder, who, you know, just told me a fascinating story about her kind of tumble into anti-vax craziness. Um, she was 18, single mother, isolated socially, really, because all her friends were at college and she wasn't. Um, and she wanted a home birth. So she, she found a, a midwife that would do that. And, and, you know, the midwife came around and, and just, you know, had the usual run of questions. And then at the end said, have you ever considered not getting your... Um, child vaccinated and, and she was like what are you talking about what I don't understand what you mean I've never heard of such a thing so she just said oh look on Google so Miranda went to Google and typed in why not vaccinate and was confronted with this entire kind of world of reasons why not vaccinate 
and then she she hit upon this Facebook group, and she said that was the big one for me. And uh, and you know she she announced herself as vaccine hesitant, and she was kind of instantly surrounded by people telling her all these stories about you know I had this kid who became autistic, I had this kid who you know it was a disaster, or, you know, um, and so she was. Bought, bought into this group. But what she said was that she was she immediately felt that she was surrounded by these amazing, impressive mums. Uh, and she just thought, I want to be like these people. These are, inc- these are really brave um, mothers who just are out there fighting for the health of their kids. And how amazing. And so, you know, she just thought, I want to be like them. And she said, you know, the, 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 the the more you went out into the world and proselytized for your beliefs, the more you embraced those beliefs and fully actively believe them, the higher you would rise in that status game of the Facebook anti-vax group. So, and, and you know, and, and you see that that's very common in, in all kinds of these kinds of groups. It's common in cults. It's common in religions. This idea that in order to gain status, you have to be the kind of puppet and warrior for the sacred beliefs of the group. I want to talk more about the stories from the status game, but there there is a through line, and I, I want to know the origins of the book because again, you have you have a book on ghosts. I didn't know about that. I don't know if it's available in the U.S., so I haven't seen that <laughs> is, one. Yeah. So now we can it go is. back further. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, so you have you have people with their fringe beliefs or extremist beliefs, or or good natured beliefs that, you know, I don't really ghosts and UFOs. I don't put in the same category as anti-vaxxers personally, but then you, you know, you go into individualism and then the science of storytelling, of course, and you've been talking about the importance of narrative and then you come to the status game. So had you been thinking about status this entire time or what gave you the impetus to write the latest book? Yeah. So in selfie, I, um, one of the people that I interviewed, um, was this, um, quite well-known British psychologist called Professor Bruce Hood. And, and during that interview, he had this, he said, um, he said, why do we do anything that we do? Uh, he said, um, um, you know, once we've got enough money to survive, everything else is validation. He didn't use the word status, he said validation. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so cynical. That's ridiculous. What a silly thing to say. And then literally I thought about it for about three seconds and I thought, oh no, God, he's right, isn't he? You know, and, and then so, so, so yeah, I became really interested in it. it. It was really that that kind of that kind of set me on this road of thinking, wow, you know. And so, so, you know, but then there are lots of those moments when you're doing your research where you just think, well, that could be an interesting book and that could be an interesting book. Um, but, but what really, um, what really kind of cemented it for me was, was, you know, the last three books have been about the brain as a storyteller, the, how the conscious experience takes the form of a story, this heroic narrative in which we are morally good um, people with great futures in store. This is if we're psychologically healthy. But then that raises the question, okay, so if that's a conscious experience and if that's this kind of uh, useful illusion, this kind of semi-truth that leads us down these mad pathways, um, what's the actual truth? Like, what's the subconscious truth? What's going on beneath the conscious level? And... Um, and I think this is the answer, you know, you know, the brain is, is very good at weaving this heroic narrative that everything we do in the world is for the greater good. And we're, you know, um, we're heroes essentially, but, 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 but underneath that, what's going on is, is, is status games, you know, because, because of the nature of our evolution, because we're this hyper social ape who has, who has to connect into groups and, and gain status within them. Um, to, in order to survive, to, to secure survival and reproduction, um, that's what we're driven to do again and again and again and again. You know that is human life. It, you join games and you play them, and that is, as I say in the book, that's that's religion, that's cult, that's business, that's sport. 
everywhere you look in in human life that's what's going on you know i, I you know i can tell by looking at you derek we, we, we're playing similar status games because we basically look identical <laughs> you know we've got a similar facial hair we've got a similar t-shirt we've never met each other we live on different sides of the planet but you can just tell by looking at us that we have very similar values and we have very similar we tell very similar stories about the world and we've never met um, and and we live thousands of miles apart but that's the power of the status game and it's the power of this kind of you know this copying instinct we all end up looking like each other <laughs> thinking like each other acting like each other um you know that's human life well we also both in our offices here have plenty of books behind us so there's another <laughs> another point of connection yes. <laughs> jesus we've even got the same color wall you know even our walls are the same color <laughs> and we've got a painting but you've got a bike <laughs> paintings are on the side you can't see them in the camera but there's some <laughs> now what one statistic that that doesn't surprise me, but that jumped out off the page was that 69 of the top 100 economies in the world are not nations, but corporations. And you write that there's no point that the chase for higher status ends, which made me think about the space billionaires recently. Uh, so what, what in your research have you found that when is enough enough? Is enough and ever enough? No, and that's the really interesting thing about status. Like, like for example, people often think about the power and status is the same thing, but power is the way to think about status is it's a game, and we use um, kind of symbols to measure our status. And depending on what your what game you're playing, you'll use a different symbol. So for some people, it's it's looks. For some people, it's youth. For some people, it's um, money, you know, for some people it's power. Um, but power isn't the same as status. Power is your ability to con- sort of control resources and other people. And what they find is that, is that people's, most people's appetite for power runs out pretty quickly because it, with power comes responsibility and stress. Um, but, uh, but, but, um, people's, uh, you know, people have different appetites for money. You know, some people don't really give a crap about money. Some people give, give a lot of a crap about money. Um, but status is different. People's appetite for status kind of never runs out. And, 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 I think the really interesting about it is is that it's not that we everybody wants to be top status um you know, our, our current prime minister in the UK, Boris Johnson, um, he's famous for, you know, when he was a kid, he was like, I don't remember how old he was. He, he told his mum that he wanted to become world king. That was his ambition. You know, we're not all psychopathically ambitious like that, but, but, but we all want to be, we all want a bit more status all the time, a bit more status, a bit more status. And one of the um, uh, studies that, that, that kind of kind of made me smile was they, one of the psychologists looked at, um, money, you know, money is a status symbol and how much money would make people satisfied. And, and this psychologist surveyed people with, who were who extremely rich, you know, millionaires and way beyond. And, and, and consistently, they all said between two and three times as much money and they'd be perfectly happy. <laughs> I mean, this idea that they're ever going to be perfectly happy, you, you know, is insane. And, and, and uh, you're right, you know, when, when, when money gets boring, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, and you know they want to go to space next because that's the next thing. Um, but but I think the thing about that, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a very left wing person. I've already been very, been very left wing person, and this means I have this kind of bias against people like Jeff Bezos and um, these people. You know, I'm instinctively uh, kind of repelled by them. Um, but 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 what this book has taught me is that that, that that's that's partly mistaken. You know, because I, I think in other people's insane levels of status pursuit. Um, you know, we, we, the rest of us do progress and the quality of life does get better and taxes 
do get paid. Not enough taxes, I will grant you, but taxes do get paid and jobs do get created. So, you know, we do need these psychopaths, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, these people who are so, un, you know, so unbelievably obsessed with their own status that they will, you know, go without sleep and, you know, food for their, their entire lives in order to win. There's a lot I think about in terms of back during my studies of religion and anthropology, you know, the romanticization of tribes as if all tribes were egalitarian, that there was perfect harmony in these smaller groups. And then, you know, as cities developed, things changed. But you you wrote that even from research from mo- modern hunter-gatherer tribes, there are, there are, there are ways of keeping people in check in the tribes uh, in order of acquiring too much status. So this does seem to be like this impulse toward status is biological. It goes way back. It's not just with the introduction of governments or large-scale governments. Yeah, uh, you know, that, that, that's a story that just won't die. And, and it, 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 it's a very tempting story, this idea that we were in, it was the Garden of Eden myth, that, that, that everything was perfect. And then, you know, capitalism came along and everything went, went bad. Um, it, it, when, 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 when researchers talk about the egalitarian nature of, um, of these small um, bands that we evolved out of, they're generally not, you know, apart from the ones that do kind of buy into that Garden of Eden story, they're, they're not saying that, that these tribes are roughly equal because um, they, they don't want status and because they're all happy being equal and no one's shoving and pushing and they're all happy. They're egalitarian because they care a, a hell of a lot about status and they are constantly checking each other to make sure that nobody... Um, gets too big for their boots, and you know it, 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 when they do analysis of, of, of say gossip in in hunter gatherer horticulturist tribes, the main subject is you know bad behaviour by high status individuals, big shot behaviour, people being pushy, people getting above their station, people showing off. They're obsessively interested in status, just as we are. Um, the, the the one thing I will say though is that of course capitalism and the modern age has radically kind of um, uh, has radically affected the way our kind of levels of status anxiety. So in that way, you know, you, you could say that's a negative because you know we've evolved to play small to operate in small groups small roughly egalitarian groups and keep each other in check so nobody actually gets too big there's no big big man leader usually um you know most often um but now of course there is you know we 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 live under leaders we li- you know and we play huge enormous games you know that statistic that you that you you, you know said about the the fact that most of the largest economies of the world are bloody corporations and not nations now you know that, that, that gives you this huge hint as to, as to how big these games that we play are now and so we're, we're not really designed to have enormously high status people loom over us like redwoods you know that, that's not how we've we've evolved and so so i think that's why you see quite so much resentment and ill feeling uh, just generally at the moment because you know we, we're designed to play relatively egalitarian games and not enormously um uh, um what's the word in uh, 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 steep games um in, in uh, unequal games you, you talked a little about the status symbols but you also write about status signals like the frequency of your voice when you're with groups or i've read research before about pantomimes where 
if you are with someone and they cross their arms, if you don't cross their arms, then there's less trust. But if you immediately mimic them, it creates more trust. How much of this (laughs) is subconscious? And uh, from your research, do people who believe themselves to be higher status, do they consciously enact these things like the changing of the frequency of their voice or is is all of this just happening under the surface and we don't really recognize it uh, until it's research is done like this well it's subconscious um you know um it, 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 it's extraordinary um the, the the rapidity with which i mean so, so some some neuroscientists um that they describe the, the kind of neural wiring in our brains as, as being as being called a, st- a status detection system so we're constantly walking around measuring each other's status versus us. And we will use anything, any kind of um, sign and symbol of other, of somebody else's status. And one of the, you know, one of the just extraordinary studies that I wrote about in the book um, was, was that they showed um, uh, people photographs of two different people wearing kind of what would be high status versus low status clothing. And they immediately made um, uh, judgments about their status, about, you know, their, uh, you know, bombing higher status and lower status, which is not surprising. But then they were told specifically that they had the same job, had the same income, but they still had the same um, uh, immediate judgments of their high status and low status. And then they were paid money, <laughs> you know, um, and, and they still um, had high status versus low status. And I think I'm right in remembering that, this judgment was made in 0.29 milliseconds or 29 milliseconds it might have been um so enormously rapid so so it's completely subconscious and and there are there are all these yeah as you said there are all these different ways that we use to kind of measure somebody's relative status and that's body language um tone of voice the way we're carrying ourselves the the, the amount of um, successful interruptions in speech uh volume of speech some of these are are um are completely biological. Um, uh, I, I think the ones to do with um, dominance, status from dominance versus status from prestige, are, are um, fully subconscious because you know we've we've been using dominance um, to play status games since before we were human, so millions of years. Um, prestige is, is more recent, but some of the some of the others will be culturally conditioned. You know, you know, if you grow if you grow up in China, you'll you'll have a different way of. Um, you'll have a different way of measuring status than if you brought up in, in the UK or the States. Like here, somebody's kind of loud and individualistic will assume they're the, they're the highest status person. Uh, but, but in China, you're more likely to think somebody kind of reserved and shy is the highest status person and they're not trying to sort of grab all the attention. So, so, so yeah, it's a mi- as most things are, it's a mix of culture and biology. Speaking of culture, I, the culture I've been inside of in America has been the wellness and yoga community for a long time, not so much since the pandemic, but it was very much the circles I ran in. And there's always been this fanciful notion that sounds good when you're in a group of like-minded people, which is not to judge anyone that we're all, you know, creatures of whatever deity is being talked about that day. Uh, But (laughs) but but then, but then you get one-on-one with these people. And and honestly, American yogis are some of the most judgmental people I've ever met. And so do the, do, do you think that people, when they're in front of groups and they're speaking these, these, you know, uh, illusions, illusory ideas, uh, like don't ever judge anyone, which is biologically impossible for good reason, you can argue, do they really believe what they're saying? Or is that part of the status game? They're just trying to like put themselves up on a pedestal to make people fawn over them. 
No, I, I think I think whenever there's doubt about this stuff, in my experience, nine times out of ten, you should go for they really believe it. You, 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 I, I, you know, they really believe it, and. I, I can't remember if I, if I put the scene in the Unpersuadables. I think I did, but you know, in the Unpersuadables, one of the chapters is I went to a a ten day silent retreat in the Blue Mountains outside Sydney, Australia, and it was just, it was it was um, Vipassana yoga. It was really hardcore. Like I shouldn't, I was a beginner. I shouldn't have gone. It was like sixty hours of meditation a day. Um, but but, the, but, but, the, but these there were four hour sessions broken up with you know talks by this Brit, you know, really thin, you know, you know really this Brit. Buddhist guy who was this, you know, he, he was kind of revered and worshipped by the group. I don't know what his formal title was. Um, and so he would give these kind of talks and, and people would listen. And then um, um, he, he, it was a silent retreat. So at the end of one of his talks, I was, I, somebody went up and one of his team gave me this kind of slip of paper requesting my presence in his office. And it turned out that I'd mortally offended this man because, you know, I'm not I'm not very good at bending my limbs, not being practiced at yogi. So I was sitting with my, the soles of my feet facing him. And he was so offended by the fact that my soles of my feet were facing him that, that he, he thought it fit to kind of pull me out and really embarrass me. I was really embarrassed, you know, by the whole thing. But then I thought, thought Jesus Christ, you know, this is not enlightenment. This is not destruction of the ego. If you're so <laughs> upset about seeing someone's feet, you know, it really gives the lie to it. You know, this guy was so full of himself and so full of his own importance. And, um, and, and not only was he full of it, the people around him were full of it too. All the people, all of the, you know, he was like a God to them. And, and you just think, how are you not seeing the, the, the status <laughs> dynamics here? The, 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 you know, they're so unbelievably evident. When Vipassana came from Burma to the United States, uh, it was originally the protocol was 49 days. And the the teachers were like, there's no way Americans are going to sit silently for 49 days. Let's <laughs> let's make a shorter version for the Western audience. So don't feel bad about <laughs> the 10 days. I haven't even done a day of silence. Oh, so it was <laughs> oh, hard. It was I've, tough. Well, did you get, <laughs> I, I've heard mixed results. I mean, did you get benefits from it though? It's so weird. Um, I didn't. Um, and um, I didn't. And then um, on the last day, I kind of got so pissed off with the whole thing <laughs> that I, 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 I escaped. I, I literally escaped in, uh, after dark. I, I, I walked through the, this forest to, and uh, ate a pizza <laughs> and, then, and then I came back um, and, 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 you know, um, feeling much better. And then um, I, I, the next day I, it was, I had this amazing session of meditation where I, you know, it was like, I felt like I was coming up on an E, you know, it, it was, it was really quite extraordinary. And of course I left, you know, the thing thinking, oh, my life has changed and it lasted about three days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tried to keep it up, but Jesus, meditating, I find it so difficult. I find it, it's, it's like torture for me. I don't know why. Oh, it's torture for everyone. I mean, even uh, years <laughs> ago I did a, I, I did a workshop with a woman, Sally Kempton, who had been in an ashram for almost 30 years meditating and came out. And I remember someone asking her, you know, when you get to that place where there's complete silence and you're not thinking like you're there, there's no thoughts. How long does it last? And she laughed and goes a second, two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just showing that, you know, I, I actually, from my experiences, very advanced meditators who really understand it have a humility around it because mm. you don't stop thinking. You don't get to like there meditation. And this is a longstanding argument, which is kind of a sidetrack, but meditation and yoga are content free, right? There's no, like when you're in that state of almost hypnotic trance, you can put any content 
into the people, your audience, and you can indoctrinate them. That's how cults work. So this idea that meditation often leads you to bliss, well, then you come across this asshole who can't look at the bottom of your feet. <laughs> and, and then you realize that there is, there is, there is this cult of ego, um, in, in everything. Uh, so, um, when I, I want to go back to the collective status for a moment, because I really appreciate that you brought up that West and East, it's not such a clear line because that is true. There's so much crossover uh, in, in, in so many different ways and so many different cultural nuances wherever you go. But you write when collective status is in decline, we become dangerously distressed. And personally, I've been seeing all of uh, what's happening around anti-vaxxers, anti-mask, whatever's happening. And then we have climate change kind of looming over everything right now. And that's something that's not being discussed. Have you noticed similar patterns in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I mean, climate change is, is discussed a lot, to be fair, in the UK. And, um, it, you know, it does seem to be a cross-party issue now. It wasn't when I was growing up. It was very much a left-wing concern. And now... Um, the, the, the righties have uh, have realised that, that that this you know needs to be addressed. So I don't think it's as as, as partisan as it is in the US. So of course there are climate change kind of skeptics here too. But yeah, it, it's interesting, and, and and it's interesting seeing you know my brother lives in Portland, Oregon, and and you know he he's been talking to me about the anti-mask anti-vax situation in the states and. It, it does, for whatever reason, seem to be a much bigger problem in the states than it does in the UK. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, we're so similar in so so many ways. But but and you know, the, the UK too are going through a period of of division and kind of culture war, for want of a better phrase. But it does seem to be. Um, more pronounced in, in, in the US. And I do wonder, you know, I do wonder about the kind of relative decline of, uh, you know, the, the, the US is a much more kind of diverse nation than in the UK. I mean, even on race, we're 85% white in the UK, which is, you know, we were overwhelmingly white. Um, so, so, you know, although we have our problems, um, the United States is this obviously unique nation, which is which is basically made up of a, a, you know, a, 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 just a complete network of competing st of status games, and I think what's happened over the last few decades is that is that is that it's become that there's become this equalization between what were dominant games and and um, uh, what used to be much more kind of um, you know the oppressed games, y y you might say. So 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 you know certain segments, especially the white working class, white middle class, uh, you know, are, are, are going to ex uh, experience that as a significant decline in status you know and and some of that some of that decline is real it's not fantasy that they, they, you know they, they you know they, they really are especially with globalization outsourcing of you know manufacturing and service industries to asia um automation uh, you know so, so, so some of this is real and so so, so yeah i think I, th I think you know a lot of this kind of cultural societal discord that you see underpinning it is groups feeling that they're the game isn't paying out as it used to, that the rewards are not there anymore. And it isn't, isn't only in the US and the UK that you see this. It, it, goes back all through, it goes back all through history. You write that the global luxury market is worth $1.2 trillion. So you write a bit about conspicuous consumption. Is there a point where that starts to change or do we just run out the clock and people are just gathering as many resources as we have? <laughs> well, we... 
I think the thing about conspicuous consumption, which is kind of less well appreciated, is that is that only people playing certain kinds of status games seek luxury as a status symbol. You know, I, I know somebody in the wellness um, business who, um, who 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 takes great pride in the fact that he drives a beaten up old car whose wing mirror is attached with you know masking tape, and, and you know that his beaten up old car is just as much a status symbol for him as these shiny Audis and, and BMWs that he's looking down his nose at. It's just that he's playing a different game and his game uses different symbols to measure status. He's very proud of the fact, I don't need that fucking car to, to, to make me feel good. But he kind of does. He needs a beaten up car to make him good. You know, you can't, <laughs> you can't divorce yourself from the status game. So that's the good thing about conspicuous consumption is that, is that norms can change. And, and actually... You know, over here in, in in the UK, of course, you know we've got this this history of aristocracy. Um, you know, who, you know another group that has seen a great decline since since the end of empire and the Second World War. But the aristos are still with us. You know, in their funny you know uh, red trousers, um, and and they, um, they 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 take great pride in like, like my wellness friend in driving beaten up old cars. They'll they'll rock up in a dirty old mud, you know mud strewn 1990s Land Rover and and be very proud of it and actually look down their noses at people who have got the brand new Teslas. And so, 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 you know, status doesn't have to mean shiny, expensive and new. It just depends on the game that we choose to play. And, and I think, you know, since the 80s, I, 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 as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, just as an observation, it does seem to me that we've, we, ha, we, we are now playing, you know, different games than we were in the 1980s. You know, pe- people are much more comfortable in using um, things like veganism, say, or, or social justice as a, a, as a way of earning status and, and making themselves feel good about themselves than they are about, you know, t- taking cocaine in Wall Street or, or whatever it was. This is, when you can afford to live, when you don't actually have to worry about resources and money, I would believe that the games you play are going to be different than the games that people who can only afford the beat up old car or not afford a car at all play, but they're still playing games across all sectors, essentially. Correct. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the kind of, again, one of the, one of the parts of this research that has genuinely made me see the world in in a different way and certainly in a more empathetic way. And that's that, um, you know, we we are we are wired to 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 to, to join get to join games and play them to to connect with with with, with groups who who measure status in a certain way and play those games to get those status. And you can't stop people doing that. They're always going to do that. And so, what you see in lots of socio-economically deprived um, communities, who, you know, who who don't have this great option of games to choose from, like we do, who are people who are sort of you know have the benefits of education and you know, financial resources, they, they often end up playing games in gangs or in Islamist um, groups, um, uh, for example. And, y- you know, we, 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 young men um, are much more likely, you know, from socioeconomically deprived backgrounds um, who are unemployed are far more likely to use violence um, to, to, to gain, to kind of force a sense of status over people than, than anyone else uh, at all. So, so you know, for me, I think that's a reason to, to, to have much more empathy for these young people that do end up um, joining extreme religions or cults or violent street gangs, because status is a is a is a fundamental human need, as fundamental as food and water, but you know, it's a psychological need. Um, and if you're raised, um, you know, in the UK context, in a kind of tough housing estate in South London, and you know, the, the only status games on offer are well, schools 
not not going to count because your school is terrible. It's under-resourced and the teachers hate you. You know, you've got a local supermarket you can go and stack shelves in, or you've got a street gang that offers major status rewards or the, all the, all the high status um, young people that you look up to are in the gang. You're going to join the gang and it's not about money. It's about status. It's about, I feel good about myself. And, and, and actually in a lot of these environments, the Islamist group or the street gang is offering the most status than any other game you might want to play. And that's why, that's why people play those games, and we're not going to, you know, get rid of the problems that the gangs and Islamist groups, terrorist groups, um, create until we start um, actually offering people from socio-economically deprived backgrounds games to play that offer real status and aren't just, you know, just build my youth club or something. You know, it's never going to work. So you mentioned gangs, which is a group of like-minded people chasing a certain sense of status, but you also write about social rejection and you say that social rejection was found in 87% of school shootings between 1995 and 2003. And you also write that humiliation is the nuclear bomb of emotions. When you get to that point where you have isolated individuals who don't find the gang, they don't find the like-minded and they feel completely alone, then violence takes on a new measure. How do you address that in the sort of society that we have where, I don't want to romanticize groups, as I said, but at least if you're in a small group, the, the shame or rejection is all part of just keeping you in check as part of the group. But now we exist in a space where people completely can exist outside of the groups. How is there something we can do to address that? Well, I, yeah. So, 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 you know, in the, in my research, I wanted to, you know, one of the big questions for me when I was sort of thinking about this was, okay, so, you know, it's one of the tests really, the very early stages of the research was if status is so bloody important, then there must be some literature on what happens when we is taken away. It must be pretty bad, and and yeah, and, and there isn't a huge literature on humiliation. But but yeah, so that, that line, the nuclear bomb of the emotions, to be yeah, I need to make clear that I I didn't come up with that. that that's an academic that I quoted, but that's what they say. Uh, you know, and they define humiliation as it's not only the removal of all your status, but it's the it's the removal of the capacity to get to 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 um, uh, gain status for basically forever. You know, you're so you're you're so removed from status, you're essentially kicked out of the game. So you know. Um, um, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, for example, um, you can see what happened to him as a, as 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 a humiliation, and that's why I, you know, um, as convinced as I can, I wasn't surprised at all when he committed suicide. I, I just don't buy the conspiracy theories because he was perfectly he was in a, he was in a, he was in a position perfectly designed to lead to suicidal ideation, and and but but and, and so what I think is that is 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 that we need to pay more attention to status as a as a fundamental human need. We we need to stop kind of looking down our nose at it as something that only only shallow people pursue. We all pursue it, um, but we also need to be to, to, to be very careful about this state of humiliation because it really does tie together. If you can think of any of the most noxious forms of human behavior, you know, in, in the book, I, I talk in detail about um, uh, kind of the incels, really, you know, these, these, these men who feel narcissistically entitled to um, female sexual attention and and yet fail to get it um, uh, and experience that as a humiliation. It kind of curdles into this this kind of grotesque misogyny. Um, specifically, I tell the story of this guy, Elliot Rogers, who, who, who left behind an extraordinary um, autobiography which we, in which he was 
kind of devastatingly honest about his his life and his life's failures. Um, uh, but also honor killings. You know, honor killings is it ha- it happen when a, it, when the family who are kind of are playing what you might call a kind of ex- a fundamentalist religious game feel humiliated by a son or a daughter who might happen to be gay or might happen to have had premarital sex, for example. And the only way they can restore their um, pride, their status is by killing that person. You know, but conservative estimates, there are around 5,000 honor killings a year. You know, some estimates go way higher than that. Um, and, you know, finally, everything up to genocide, you, you, you know, genocides tend to happen when um, the status of rival groups change. And, and, and you know, of course, the Holocaust is the, is, is the genocide that, that we think of the first comes to mind and that that happened following the you know the humiliations of the first world war and the treaty of Versailles in germany this 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 you know incredibly successful incredibly proud uh, high status um nation was was humiliated again and again and again and just like the incel just like elliot rogers weaves a story blaming women for his downfall um and uh, that told him that kind of violent revenge on women was a w- 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 was the, the just thing to do m- m- hundreds of thousands perhaps millions of germans told exactly the same story um uh, uh, which led to the, the the holocaust so 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 you know w- when you underst- underst- to understand the importance of state is, is to understand that the, the absolute peril, the danger of humiliating people and, and humiliating groups. So, I, you know, I, I think we do well as a, a, as a society and as a culture to, 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 to start being very, very careful um, about um, humiliating other people, no matter how we feel about them. I mean, you see this in social media. It, you know, so much of, of, of the conflict on social media comes about because it's public. And, and when somebody attacks you on social media, it's humiliation. You're being humiliated in front of all of your followers. So that triggers people to just, you know, escalate aggression more and more and more. You brought up two things there as I get towards the bottom of my list of questions, which is the Holocaust and Nazi (laughs) Germany and social media. Because I I think about the neighborhood I live in Los Angeles is called Palms. It's, it's, it's nice. It's a decent neighborhood. It's a lot of apartments. It's, it's, there's crime. It's, it's fine. It's not a nice area, but even here, the average price of an apartment is eight to $900,000. Uh, and I recently read wow. that if, if from the 1980s, if housing prices kept track with uh, with uh, wages, the average price of a house in the U.S. would be sixty one thousand dollars. So we obviously have a serious economic problem. And you write that far more effective than racial hatred was the promise of future status, referring to Nazi Germany. And that is well studied with Hitler. You know, as terrible as it was for the German people, there is a list of what you write about of positive benefits he brought to the Germans in terms of the culture, the cultural outreach programs you talk about. Uh, So there was this idea that has long existed in America that you can get that house with a picket fence and all of that. But right now it seems to have reversed because we have a president who is championing a brighter future, but it seems like a large part of the population just isn't buying it, both on the right and left, but predominantly the right. But his message seems to really be falling flat right now. Do you is have you noticed that in the UK where I mean what what's being promoted? Is there a brighter future that we're looking at? 
Well, I think you've got to separate the promotion from the from the reality. You know, this is one of the sort of parts of the book I was most nervous about <laughs> about writing, um, because you know the reality <laughs> is, and you never you don't ever hear this story, but for for, for reasons that are going to become rapidly obvious, is that is that Hitler genuinely did bring status to Germany. He, he you know, the, 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 we have this kind of. Uh, uh, kind of almost magic belief that he was a monster, but but you know Hitler wasn't a monster. He was a person, and the, and and the, and the, the Germans in the 1930s weren't monsters either. They were people with with human brains, and and so Hitler came about promising, like Joe Biden, like Donald Trump, like Boris Johnson, promising that things were going going to become better under his leadership. And and uh, but the, and the fact is, they did become better under his leadership. Uh, you know. Um, the, the, by the end of by the by the end of the thirties, they you know they'd gone from being in a state of absolute chaos to you know almost full employment. They were they they had um, uh, you know loan schemes that that that. that so many people benefited from. They put on operas. They gave people free holidays. They, you know, they, 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 there's just a huge list in the book of, of, of kind of kind of kind of actual things that actually happened in the world that that, that led um, Germans to believe that their national honour was being restored. And one of the big surprises for me, I don't know how well known it is, but but you know, being brought up in Britain and being taught endlessly about the Second World War, the, the, the story that we get told is really because it was so horrific. It, it's it's really mostly about the Holocaust, and so you imagine that Hitler was there all through the 30s, ranting about the Jews and those speeches. But actually, he was ranting about restoring Germany's. In the 20s, he was doing that. But once he got into power, he, he he dialed all that down because he didn't he didn't really go that well with the middle classes. He was much more interested in restoring Germany's status, and and, and he did it. And, and not only did he do it, but with these you know with with these kind of various kind of schemes. You know, it was it was technological advances like the like the motorways. The Nazis were the first um, government. To, to definitively link lung cancer to smoking, they so you know they had all these amazing health and safety um, advances, um, so, uh, but but also he he undid the kind of humiliations of the, of the Treaty of Versailles. He just stood up to the to, to the European powers and took the land back and 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 and, and met no resistance. So so. so he had the message, but he also had the results. And so when, and 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 to me. You know, when you think about those scenes of Germans, the famous scenes of Germans in hundreds of thousands flooding the streets and squares, completely going bananas at Hitler, you think, what happened? They were all mad. But that's the power of status. You know, he promised them more status. He delivered it too. And what you're seeing at the moment is... um, people promising future status, but they're not delivering it. Donald Trump said he was going to make America great again. He didn't do that. Um, Joe Biden is full of promises, but he's not done anything, you know, practical to restore anyone's sense of status, as far as I can see. Uh, It's quite interesting in the moment, you know, we had a, a very rare moment of national pride with the with, with you know with the vaccine um, rollout in the UK you know for a, for a vanishingly short period of time we, we were with Israel as kind of world leaders in, in getting vaccinated and it was quite interesting to feel even me I'm one of these I'm one of these terrible lefties that sees a Union Jack and immediately thinks racist you know that's my that's my prejudice um, I'm not nationalistic at all but even I felt proud I was like oh that's amazing you know we, we, we're like you know world leaders and and you feel it I I, I felt it too and, and everybody I know felt it we were quite pleased with ourselves until. 
you know, they started going wrong again. Um, so, 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 so yeah, and that was a rare instance of, of somebody, you know, somebody promising that things were going to be better after we left the European Union. And actually, for a while, it was, you know, if we'd have been with the European Union, we'd have been unvaccinated for a few months. And I think they've overtaken us now, Germany again, typically. <laughs> typically. Um, but yeah, so, 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 you know, in order for this stuff to work, you can't just tell the story. You have to actually, you actually have to make it happen. And when you do make it happen, you know, people will love you and they will support you and they will become fanatical about you. <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot of ways I can go with that thinking about American politics, but I don't want to, I don't want to get into that. I want to close on a good <laughs> note because as I'm reading the book, uh, in, in the beginning, there are certain, there are a lot of books that are written that you can tell from early on that they're prescriptive books. And I, reading your entire book, I did not feel this was a social psychology book, a very insightful book about who we are as social animals. But at the end, you actually offer prescription and it was really well done, which made me happy because you're very honest about it. You're not offering this, oh, do this and everything's going to be great, which is such a publishing <laughs> trend in America, especially. Uh, so you, Well, my publishers definitely wanted that book. Yeah, I can tell you they wanted that book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they, they, wanted to, they wanted to call the subtitle. They, 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 they actually wanted to call it the status game on social position and how to use it. But I had to, I had to say, no, that's not, <laughs> that's uh, not the book I've written. <laughs> yeah. But, but you, you know. because you're like, we're not going to, we're not going to think ourselves out of status. It's part of who we are. So at least if you recognize it, you can take some steps at mitigating the damaging effects, such as originality makes it difficult for rivals to catch you, which I thought was awesome. So talk to me a little bit about, the prescriptive elements of what you can do, knowing how dangerous that status can be, but also that it's just part of us. What can we do to make things perhaps better as a society, knowing that this is who we are as animals? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is to accept it and, and understand how you, you know, the games that you're playing. Um, I can tell you that, um, you, you know, my wife always talks about one takeaway from the book, which is that you're not competing with everybody else in the world. You're, you're playing a, a local game with people immediately around you. And, you know, she, she, she's a magazine editor, so she lives in a very competitive, she, she works in a very competitive world um, in the fashion, you know, she, she had his L magazine in the UK. And, and she said that's just been really helpful to her just to realize that, that all these people that she was feeling kind of jealous of and feeling like she was competing with, she shut down most of those now because, well, I'm not competing with that person. That's an author. I'm not competing. So, so I, th I think understanding that you're not competing with Michelle Obama or the King of Thailand, you know, understand that you're playing a local game is, is really useful. Um, and I think once you've done that, it's about... Um, it's about playing a hierarchy of games. So, so, so the first thing is you want to play multiple games because if you if you only play one game, that's the definition of a cult. You know what makes a cult a cult is that that it, that, that, that it has to be your sole source of status. That 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 group and its rules and symbols and its game. They don't even allow you to you know a proper cult. That's why they want you to cut off even your family, your friends. Everything is for the cult. So that's the one game. You know, fundamentalist religions are kind of similar. Um, you know, extremist political movements are similar. You, they're very conformist uh, and you don't really want to play those games because they're tyrannies. You know, when, 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 they, when they become really tight and conformist, they're, they're a tyrannical group and that's not good for you and it's not good for the people around you because you're going to start, um, you know, trying to kind of co-op them into your group um, in, in, in a dominant way. Um, so, so you want to play lots of games, you know, and, and that's partly for your own um, 
psychological health because you know if i'm just playing the author game uh, and say i got cancelled tomorrow for my for, for saying hitler did hitler did some things that were successful um and i couldn't publish anymore i you know i i'd be in serious psychological trouble and actually i probably would be because you know i, I should play more games than i do but if you play multiple other games then you have you're kind of hedging against the loss of status in one domain um but that's not to say that you need to play lots of games equally, because in order to kind of really gain status in, in any group, in any game, you need to actually devote some time and thought and attention to it. You know, it's hard work to gain status in a group. So that's why I say you should play a hierarchy of games. Ideally, you should have a number of games that you're playing, not too many, but not too few. And they should be in a hierarchy. There should be one main game that you're playing. I mean, you know, Derek, you've got the podcast, but obviously you're into wellness, you're into um, meditating, so that's another game. So, so you can, you're hedging, you've got these different identities and, and your kind of psychological health isn't dependent on just one of those identities. So that's a very healthy way psychologically of going about your life. So those are some of the, those are some of the practical things. 